Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Every good teacher knows the importance of assessment. And great assessment by great teachers always encourages further learning. The disciples in our text this morning had been with Jesus for over two years. They had watched his ministry. They had walked beside him, watched his teaching, seen what he had done. And Jesus knew that many tests were coming to them as he gets closer to going to Jerusalem and is arrested, is tried, is crucified, is buried. And after he is raised, they will preach the gospel and they will face more and more tests and persecution. So here in the middle of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has some time to spend with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And he gives them what, of course, your pastor who's also a professor would term a midterm exam. At the seminary, it's time for midterms and we want to assess our students and how they're doing and, and, and how they're learning what they're supposed to be learning and so we give midterms, and I believe as you come to what I've mentioned to you for some weeks now, as we've led up to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, this pinnacle, this climax of this section of the gospel where we get Peter making this wonderful confession, and Jesus, in his setting that up for Peter and bringing the disciples along, have, has decided to give a midterm exam assessing where the disciples are in their walk in, uh, of faith and their uh, estimation of who Jesus really is. To understand where we are and to get us into this context, let me bring you back into the context of Matthew chapter 16. If you are just joining us, we are in the middle of a study of Matthew's gospel. And Matthew is showing us Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is bringing us along in this gospel so that we might believe Jesus is the king and we would be those who would follow after him, repent and believe to come into the kingdom that he is declaring. And so Matthew is writing for a specific reason, and that reason is to bring you to believe in Jesus, that your faith would be placed in Him. In the last couple of weeks, we've mentioned that at the deepest recesses of who we are as people is what we would call belief. 
It's where we believe. So if that's the case, if at the deepest recesses of who you are, if at the core of your being is your belief, then the major question of life has to be, what do you believe? And we said that last week as we looked at the text and we saw that uh, uh, Matthew is addressing through Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees, through his interaction with his disciples, that there were two major causes of unbelief that Jesus was confronting in these conversations. This week, the text leads us to this question, what do you believe? And to be more specific, I think what Matthew is going to bring us to in the climax of this section of his gospel is what do you believe about Jesus? You see, my friends, the key uh, part of this gospel is and the key to your life is you must answer the question. Everyone must answer the question, what do you believe about Jesus? And so, friends, if you're here today, we as a church have gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you're a guest with us, we have a confession about Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Much like what Peter has said, he stated this confession about Christ on our behalf this morning. And we have gathered in His name because this is what we believe. But church, even as you're sitting here, you must address in your life, what do I believe about Jesus? If you're a guest with us today, the question of your life is, what do you believe about Jesus? And so while you may have come this morning not expecting to be given an exam, I believe the text is going to give us an exam this morning, and Jesus is going to show us what we need to address in our own hearts as Matthew gives us what I believe is a three-question midterm exam of sorts. It contains three questions, and I want to call your attention to the text this morning as we look at these three questions together and consider them. Question number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is what Jesus does in verse 13. He's there with his disciples, has some time to speak with them, and he looks at them. And as a preliminary question to the real question, he is going to kind of set up a contrast for them. He, in this preliminary question, says, who do people say that I am? So that he's going to turn and come back to them and say, so who do you say that I am? But who do people say that I am? Now look at the disciples' answers in verse 14. They're interesting to me. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So we have three people here, really four categories, if you just throw in, are one of the prophets. And so as we look at their, their answers this morning, we don't, we, we're not going to dive into all of them, but I do want to make three comments about their answers so that you and I can understand the contrast that Jesus is setting up in the real question, who is Jesus? And so the disciples are answering on behalf of the people. This is what they hear. This is what they see in the culture. They see in the crowds that are going around. And three quick comments. First, the disciples don't mention any negative any negative answers, any negative titles that have been given to Jesus. They're not answering on behalf of the religious leaders. They're answering on behalf of what the people believe. And so, just note, the religious leaders have already said, here's who we believe he is. We believe he's of Satan. We believe he's Beelzebub. We believe that he is not of God. So they're not even going to mention those. They are mentioning people who are positively viewing Christ, and so they have a positive view. People who view Jesus in a positive light. Here are their answers. And so, second comment about their answers. 
all of the ones that they mention here are said to be forerunners of the Messiah. John the Baptist. He is the one who would come and he would be the Elijah who comes. We've already read that in this text. He is the forerunner of the Messiah, but not the Messiah. Elijah in Malachi chapter 4, we find out that Elijah is going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. When Elijah comes and he is preaching that uh, the Messiah is coming, we know that the Messiah is here. So he is a forerunner of the Messiah, but not the Messiah. In the time between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were some writings there that held that in in Jewish life that uh, uh, Jeremiah would come before the coming of the Messiah. So all of these are forerunners of the Messiah, but they're not the Messiah. So these people, the disciples say, people are willing to say you are from God, but they won't go so far as to say you are Messiah. Third statement. For Jesus to have been any of these, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, he would have had to been one of them come back from the dead. Remember in chapter 10 when, when Herod addresses Jesus and he says, this is, Eli- or, excuse me, this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. Notice this, they're not saying that there's not something uniquely special about Christ. They're even willing, the people who are following after Jesus, they're seeing his ministry, they're willing to say he's a forerunner of the Messiah. He is miraculous. He has one of them come back from the dead, but he's not the Messiah. Let me just make this comment before we move on. People, very many people in our world, in other religions, and even in this place perhaps today, are willing to go so far with Jesus, but they're not willing to go all the way. You might say this morning that there are many people that we could quote in the context of their own religion. Maybe you could quote in your own life, maybe even in your own thought life, you would say to me this morning, Pastor, I know that Jesus was a great man, and I'm going to follow him. He says some really good stuff. Maybe you would say he's an excellent moral teacher, perhaps the most morally minded man, spiritually minded teacher that has ever lived. He is there. You might even go so far as to say, I know that Jesus is from God. I know that he's a teacher sent from God. I know that he did miraculous things. I know that he's someone that I would aspire to be like, that we need to form our lives after him, that we need to follow his example in our our lives of his love, of his sacrifice to others. You might even say he's the best teacher that ever lived or he's a miraculous healer. But if you're not willing to say he is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who has come from God, you are at a point where you're saying, This is the type of person that might make me reshape my life. Learning about him might shape my thinking and my love and how I live. It might cause me to change my habits, to stop some things or to start some other things. But it's not worth me giving everything I am to. It's not worth me dying to me in order to have life. He is not that kind of Messiah. You see, if he, might, if he is not God in the flesh, the fulfillment of all of the promises of God, the one who will bring back order to a chaotic, sinful creation, then I can think all kinds of things about him and all kinds of great things about him, but I don't believe he is who God says he is. There are many, many people who will go a long way with Christ, but they don't go all the way. Church, could it be this morning you're sitting here and you thought all kinds of thoughts about Christ, but you've never given Him everything. 
So Jesus turns to his disciples. Those who are willing to believe he's a teacher, that they're willing to believe he's even miraculous, sent from God, forerunner, but not the actual Messiah, not the one that we are to bow to and is going to bring life. And he says, but who do you say that I am? You see, he turns. I can see just in my own mind's eye him turning to the disciples. And this you is emphatic. But who do you say that I am? I'm not concerned about them. I I ask you who they said that I am so that you can bring it up as a contrast. Great teacher, great man, miraculous healer, back from the dead, forerunner of the Messiah, but not the Messiah. But who do you say that I am? You see, church, the question this morning that you are going to have to face, the real exam question of your life, is who do you believe Jesus is? Every person, not only in this room, but that walks the face of this earth, at any time, in any point of history, will have to answer that question. Who do you believe Jesus is? So he turns to them and he asks them, the you here is plural. He's asking all of them. And as is common, uh, Simon Peter uh, speaks on behalf of all of them. He has done so already in this gospel when they didn't understand a couple of the parables. He said, Lord, teacher, explain this to us. Explain the parable to us. Simon Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples. You know that he doesn't have a problem speaking up. As a matter of fact, he has that reputation. You read the New Testament. When we get to the book of Acts and we get to the day of Pentecost, Peter is the one that's going to stand and preach. He is kind of a spokesperson for them and so Peter takes it upon himself to stand up to look at Jesus and he answers the question don't miss it chapter 16 verse 16 Simon Peter replies watch this he says you are the Christ the son of the living God you are the Messiah you are not a forerunner of the Messiah you're not someone sent from God you are the Messiah. Uh, The Messiah, the Christ here, is simply the Greek term for the word for Messiah. It means He is the promised one. Church, we could walk through from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 all the way to this verse and just watch what God has been promising to do. That He would send the one who would be the seed of the woman to crush the head of Satan. That He would be the anticipated prophet that's greater than uh, uh, Moses. He would be the prophet. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Isaac. And he is the one that was promised to come to deliver his people from their sins. He fulfills all the promises of God. He is the anticipated Messiah, coming one, the Redeemer, the one who will restore all things. Peter says, you are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting on. You're the one that will make things right. Because sin has entered our world and we need a deliverer. You are that. You are the Christ, the Messiah. He not only says you're the Messiah, he says you're the Son of the living God. Not only the Son of Man, as Jesus referred to himself even in this passage, he's the Son of God. He's the one that's not just any God. He's not the Son of just any God. He's the Son of the only God, the Son of the living God. Not the dead gods of the Amorites or the Canaanites or the Hittites. Jesus is not Hittites. Jesus is not a, a son of a dead god that is just a, a statue somewhere. He's not the son of a false god. He's a son of the living God. And he's the only son of the living God. We're not, th- we're not talking here that Jesus has just come from a God. He is the son of the living God. And so he's not from a false god of the Buddhist or the Hindus or the, the, the Muslims. 
He is the Creator God whose Son has been sent to the world for our redemption. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a confession. We could spend our time there uh, just reflecting on, delighting in this confession of Peter. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Church, this morning, question number one in the exam that you and I must take. Who is Jesus? Question number two. How do you know this about Jesus? How do you know this about Jesus? This is a, as amazing to me as I've studied this week. It, it has blessed my heart. This, this statement, this pinnacle, the climax, the purpose of Matthew's gospel has been to bring you and I, the reader, along that we would confess here along with Peter. We've seen his work. We've seen his teaching. We've watched him. And we confess with you, Peter. We've wanted to say it way before you. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, when you were sinking, we were saying, trust Jesus. When you were one of weak faith and didn't understand, we were saying, have faith. We have seen who He is. And now Peter is confessing that. And Jesus then, in verse 17, answers the question for us that you and I must answer. How do you know this is true about Jesus? Look at verse 17. Jesus answers him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Simply means Simon, son of Jonah. I think maybe here we should read that Jesus is, is highlighting uh, um, Peter's humanness, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Church, just as plain as I can say it, what Jesus is saying to Simon is, Simon, it is only God who can reveal this to you. Only God can put this in you. Only God can bring you to a place that you believe this. He is the only one that can reveal this to you. Human blood, humans, anything that's mortal could not bring you there. You couldn't just in your cleverness get to a place where you would know Jesus is going to come from God. He is going to be born of a virgin, laid in a manger, and live his life at this time, in this way, in this city, and go to the cross to die for the sins of man. You see, all of human wisdom is folly. You can't just reason your way to this knowledge. God must have revealed it to you. If you think about it, not, not where we're headed, but just think about it on this side, if we would have thought about how God should have saved the world, I don't know that any of us would have come up with this kind of a plan. A baby born of a, man, born of a, 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 a poor peasant couple in Bethlehem. But God had planned this before the foundation of time. And He told us this is how He was going to do it. He showed us in the prophecies that this would be exactly the way He would do it. And now Jesus is here and we are told, You must believe him. And now Peter makes this confession and Jesus says, you couldn't have gotten that from human wisdom. You couldn't have gotten that from flesh and blood. Only my father could reveal that to you. So how do we know? What's the source of our knowledge? Listen, the father, the father who sent the son, the father who 
tells the Son what to say, how to live. Jesus, who does the complete will of the Father, we get who Jesus is, how God is going to save through this source, and that is the Father. He not only sent Jesus, He gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. What has Matthew then shown us about Jesus and what he taught us about himself? Take your Bible in your hand and I want to walk you through just a couple of things. It won't take us long in this gospel. So take your Bible in your hand. Go back with me to chapter 5, verse 17. I want to show you what Jesus has told us by the will of the Father about himself just in this gospel up to this point to bring Peter... That the Lord would reveal to him this truth about Jesus. How could he know that? Alright, so before you get to Matthew 5, let me just say. The people had seen the same miracles. They had heard the teaching. But they had not believed. So the Father is giving this to Peter and the disciples to Believe. What do they believe? What have they heard? Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins this sermon. And he says down here, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Listen to this. Listen to the statement. Jesus says, all of the Old Testament law, everything that was in the temple, all of the, the sacrificial system, all of the rules and regulations that Moses gave you to show your sin, I am here and I am the fulfillment of all of it. What a statement. God is revealing to us, Jesus is the one promised. And Jesus says, I fulfill the entire law. Now, move on. I, I, I want to stop at some of those and make more, but we can't. We've got to move. Turn over to chapter 7, verse 22. The end of the Sermon on the Mount. The end of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus is teaching there. And he says in verse 22, On that day, many will say to, to me... Right, Jesus speaking. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 7 is saying to us, many will say to me, many will come before me at the end and say, Lord, Lord. He's saying, I am the judge. I have fulfilled the law. I'm the fulfillment of it. It all points to me. But when it comes to the end and you stand before your maker, I am the judge. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, let us enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I will be the judge there. What is he claiming for himself? He is claiming that he is God. He is indeed the son of the living God. Now turn over to chapter 9, verse 2. I don't have to turn in my Bible on that one. Just go over to chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus heals a paralytic here and he says to the paralytic before he heals him in verse 2 of chapter 9, take heart, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is looking at someone who is a sinner and speaking as God, the only one who could forgive sins, and says, your sins are forgiven. He is the only one that could say that. Why? Because he is the son of the living God and he is God. Chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus is in a conversation with the Pharisees again and the scribes, and they're attacking him about his views of the Sabbath. And Jesus says in verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is telling them as they're talking about profaning the temple, Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. What in the world could be greater than the temple? The temple is the place that God would meet with His people. He would come and, and, and tabernacle with them. They could commune with God there. Uh, the mercy seat and the ark of the 
covenant is there. And so they would sprinkle the blood and, and kill the, the lambs there and shed blood and worship God and meet with Him there. And Jesus says, God with us, Emmanuel, I am here. Something greater than the temple is among you. Now skip down to verse 8. In that same chapter, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is making incredible claims about Himself. He is God. There's no getting around what Jesus is saying when He says, I can forgive sins. I'm greater than the temple. I am Lord of the Sabbath. If you were to go to the Old Testament and read about the Sabbath and the Sabbath rest that we are to take once a week is what you would know. But Jesus, our God, took a Sabbath rest at creation and He tells His people, you must take a Sabbath rest. And this month, on this day, and there's multiple Sabbath rest in the, uh, uh, the month in which we would have the Day of Atonement. And then every seven years there's a Sabbath year that you're to let things lie dormant. And then every 50 years that we have a year of Jubilee. And it's a Sabbath of the Sabbaths that everything is restored in there. And Jesus says, I am that. All of it was pointing to me. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the, the Jubilee, if you will. And He is claiming to be God. One more, chapter 13, verse 41. Chapter 13, verse 41. In the midst of the parable of the weeds, when Jesus is going to separate the weeds, the wheat and the the weeds here, in verse 41 he says, The Son of Man will send His angels. Jesus claiming here to be God says, I will send my angels. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. Jesus is saying very clearly, I am the one that will set things right. I will separate righteousness from unrighteousness. I'll separate those who are mine and will live forever and those who will not for eternity, forever and ever. My kingdom will last. Don't miss what God has revealed to us through Jesus, through His teaching, and you and I can come to a place where people Peter comes in chapter 16, verse 16, you are Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Jesus had said to them and said to us back in chapter 11, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So the Father has revealed the Son, the Son reveals the Father, and you and I need their revelation to know God, and my friends, He has given it. They sent the Spirit who inspired the Word of God to reveal to us the Son of God that you and I might come to Him in faith. And so this morning we, we say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing. We hear the Word of God. We hear the, the teaching of Jesus in the Word of God and we come by faith to Him. And so with Peter and the disciples who heard the message of Christ, granted faith by the Spirit, by the Father's revealed to us And they believe and we believe. By the will of God, friend, you are here in this place today. It is no mistake that you have come into this place. You are hearing the message of who Jesus is. And the question of your life is who is Jesus? And how do you know? The revelation of God says He is the Messiah, the one who will judge forever. So if you think this morning for some reason you can walk out and say, well, He's a good teacher, He's the greatest teacher, He's a miracle worker, and He should make some difference in my life. Let me tell you, you are saying one of a couple of things. Either He's mad and didn't know what He was saying, He's a liar because He's just claimed to be God, or you just refuse to believe Him. 
Will you say he is Messiah? Jesus, the only option you've given us is you are Lord. You are King. You are Messiah. Son of the living God. Note this. If you're in this place today, if God sends you anywhere in the world, church, listen, you and I can't reveal Jesus to people. We can preach the word. We can read the word. But it is a work of God to reveal Jesus to us. And he's done so. And his spirit is at work. And so I would say to you this morning, if you are hearing the message of Christ, maybe for the first time, you've heard the words before, but the Spirit of God is at work in your life, even this morning, do not turn. Do not turn. Do not walk away yet again. The Bible would say, and I will say to you, I can't reveal Jesus to you, so if you are knowing by the Spirit of God who is at work in your heart this morning, He must work for you to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and if He's working He who has ears, let him hear. Respond to the gospel. Question number three. Who is Jesus? How do you know? Thirdly, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean that Peter, on I believe on behalf of the disciples, as the spokesperson of the disciples, says you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? What does that mean? Jesus says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What does it mean? It means that God is building a people for himself through faith in his Son. His Son is building a kingdom. And here, for the very first time in the New Testament, he says... I will build my church. In the Gospels, Matthew is the only one that uses the word church. Here and in chapter 18, we'll get there very quickly. But he is saying to us what Jesus is doing. What does it mean that Jesus is redeeming, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Messiah? What does the coming of the Messiah mean? Jesus is bringing a people to himself. He is redeeming, restoring, giving us an inheritance in Christ. He is bringing us salvation. And he's inviting you to be a part of his people, the people of God, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is doing something. That's what it means. God is on the move. He is making a people for himself. And so we read these wonderful words in verse 18 and following about the church. And I want us just to spend the rest of our time, which is not much, on these words that we would reflect together about the church, about what God is doing, about what it means that you and I can come by faith to Christ and be brought into His people, His church, right here. And so, friends, this morning, there is no way that I can go into every issue that's in the rest of this text. But let me just make five statements about the church and Jesus and His church as we come to this final question on the exam. What does it mean? It means that Jesus is building the church, and I want you to see first what He talks to us about the church is the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Let's look at the foundation. 
Now, there are a couple of views, at least five views that you could read about what this has said. As a matter of fact, much ink has been spilled and much dispute has been made over what does Jesus mean. And the whole thing is about what does it mean when we read on this rock? What is this rock? There are those who believe it's Peter. These are the Roman Catholics. They believe that Peter is the foundation of the church. He is then the first in a long line of popes who are the supreme authority, the representative of Christ on the earth. And so Peter is the foundation. There are those that believe it's Jesus' teaching. That we go back and say, what Jesus is talking about is, you have made this confession based on my teaching, so that's what it is. There are people who believe that it's Peter's confession. That the antecedent of this must be Peter's answer to Christ's question. There are those that believe it's just Peter's faith. And it's faith that we're talking about. And then there are those that would say and argue uh, exegetically for, that it's Jesus himself. Now while I'm not going to take one or other of those, I will tell you I don't believe it's Peter. I think I've got really, really good foundation, not the least of which is coming up. We're going to have an argument on who's the greatest among the apostles. And if it would have been Peter here, they would have known. It's Peter. We don't have to ask that. And so, what is clear here? What is clear in this foundation? First, Peter is being addressed. So whatever you think about this, don't let the Roman Catholic view, which is wrong, take you away from understanding that Jesus is speaking to Peter. Perhaps on behalf of the entire disciples, on the half, behalf of the apostles, but he's speaking to Peter. So do not exclude Peter. He is the one, or at least one of the ones, if he's speaking on behalf of all, who has received the revelation of God about who Jesus is. So don't make too little of Peter. I think at the very least we must say, Peter's the first one that Jesus is acknowledging as a part of the church. Because he is the one on this confession. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Peter is being addressed. Secondly, Peter is being addressed as one who has just made a confession. He's made the confession of faith that has been revealed to him by the Father. So whatever you believe, and when you come to Peter, it's not just Peter as Peter. It's Peter as the one who has just made this great confession. You cannot separate the man and his confession in this text because something has been, the blessing of verse 17 has been given to Peter because of what has been revealed to him. Thirdly, it's very clear from this text and the New Testament that the church is not exclusively built on Peter as if it was dependent on Peter. Rather, I think rightly, we would read in the rest of the New Testament how to read this text that Christ is the cornerstone and the foundation of His church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. No one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Matthew has already referred us to Christ as the rock in chapter 7 upon which uh, we will build a life that lasts. Christ has already been shown to be the rock in this book. So perhaps we say with the Apostle Paul, Christ is the cornerstone and the foundation... And we'll go further, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and say the apostles are the foundation, or more appropriately, the apostles' teaching, what has been given to Peter even here. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. This is what we look at. Jesus and this confession of Peter, Peter being the first, I believe, part of this church with the apostles, they are the foundation and listen, because it's Jesus as the cornerstone, it will not fall. This is the foundation. You are the Christ. The church is built on Christ. It's built on 
who He is. And we become part of it by confessing that, by believing that with Him. So look at the foundation. Secondly, I want you to look at the, the builder, Jesus being the builder of His church. Look at verse 18. I will build my church. Friends, because Jesus is the master builder of the church, He is building His church. It will not fail. So no matter how oppressive or how hopeless the situation, He will build His church. We have some friends with us today that are praying about a next week meeting for the first time with a church plant over in Nightdale. A good friend of mine that I've been praying about this church plant for quite some time. They're here this morning and we encourage you. We want to as a church just come alongside of you and encourage you and say God is building His church. You and I in our world are planting and and supporting plants in Baltimore and, and Lamino Town Baptist Church. Jesus will build His church. We are right here in the Bund community in this culture in this time in this nation and in the midst of political unrest in the midst of whatever you believe about what's going on in our country economically no matter what happens economically politically in our world no matter what happens in the Middle East no matter what happens in this world here's what we know Jesus said I will build my church so my friends what are you spending your life with what do you believe about who Jesus is how do you know that and what are you doing about it because if he has made us his church you and I can come to him and know that as the master builder he will not fail his church will not fail so be a part of something that will last when all is said and done in this world, in this time. What I know is God will have been faithful. Jesus will have been successful. He will build His church and His church will be His bride forever and ever. No matter how hopeless you might think this world is, Jesus is building His church. And let me be clear. It's not faithful believers who build the church. It's Jesus who builds the church through faithful believers. So we read in Acts chapter 2 verse 47, the Lord adds to their number. It's the Lord adding to the number on the day of Pentecost. In Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 and 26, as Peter, or excuse me, as Paul is addressing Christ and his church, he says Christ gave himself for his church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and, and the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. My friends, when this whole world comes to an end, our Savior is going to present a spotless bride to himself. Why? Because he is building his church. I invite you to be a part of what the master builder is doing. He's the builder. Thirdly, it's Not only is he the builder, he's the owner. He says, I will build my church. He's the owner of the church. We belong to him. Which means to me, not only will the church not fall, not only will the church not fail, the church will not be lost. Because he's the owner. And he will never lose those who are his. I said this earlier in the early service. I'll say it to you guys. Sometimes my stomach turns, and I know we don't have a really good way of saying this, but you can tell when somebody's talking about it, especially you get around a bunch of preachers, and they talk, start talking about, well, my church is this, and my church is doing that, and my church is doing this, and you just hear them talk like it's them, and they're building it here. Let me just be clear. This church and the church of Jesus Christ in general and this local church, it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It is that we are part of His church. This church belongs to Jesus Christ and it's His and He will not lose it. We are His people. He will not lose you.
He will sustain His church. Fourthly, Jesus is our victory. Jesus is our victory. Read on in verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think it's somewhat unfortunate that the King James translated the word there, Hades, hell, because even in the ESV we put hell in a little note. Yours, if it has hell, has a little note to look down at the bottom. It says Hades. Hades is the more appropriate thing here. It's the Greek equivalent of uh, Sheol, the place of the dead. So what we're saying here, I, I, I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is that the church is then going to charge hell. I think what he's saying is the gates of Hades. You see, the gates are what holds people in. The gates of the place of the dead. The gates of Hades. The place of, de of death. The place where the dead are. That is the curse of sin which has come into our world and the death that is spread to our world. It will not be able to hold back those whom Christ saves. Death itself can't stop the expansion of the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing. Why? Because He is victorious. So the gates of Hades can't even prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost in his sermon when he says, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. In John chapter 14 verse 19, Jesus says, because I live, you will live. Then over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul wraps it all up this way. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ Jesus is our victory and the gates of Hades will not prevail Jesus overcame death hell and the grave and death cannot conquer it will not hold back what Jesus is doing in his church and then fifthly very briefly Jesus is the authority I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, we come to a verse that we could spend the rest of this day, the rest of this week, the rest of this month, discussing what theologians and commentators have said about it. I will say this, Jesus is clearly showing us, as is Matthew in this gospel, the authority of the king. And here the king is giving those keys to the kingdom to us. What is the key? What's the key to the kingdom? It is the gospel. Jesus is saying, listen, two things. First, I'm giving you the gospel. And what you know is when you proclaim, you can proclaim with all the authority of heaven that through faith and repentance, you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. As a church, we have the authority to say that on the authority of our king, you can come into the kingdom of heaven. You can be saved by Christ. You can enter in. So if you have ears to hear, then listen here today. If the Lord is calling you, then come. Why? Why can I say that so confidently? Because the keys have been given. Jesus has given us the gospel and the responsibility to share it. But just like that, we have the responsibility and uh, the privilege of standing and saying, if you will not, if you refuse, if you will not repent, if you will not come to Him, then you are bound. And what is bound here will be bound in heaven because what you and I know are the keys to the kingdom and the way that we would get into the kingdom is through the gospel. So if you will not respond, you will be eternally punished, separated from God. I can say that with the authority 
of our Lord. Why? Because the church has been given this authority. The authority of our Savior. He is our authority and He's given us these keys. We must use them. We must proclaim, here's how to get in. Here's what will assure you that you'll never be in. The authority of the kingdom. Much more can be said here, but church, I want to call us to this table. You see, the question this morning for you and for me is, who is Jesus? How do you know? And what does it mean? And what we're about to proclaim is that Jesus is the king. And the king has come and given his body. In just a moment, our servants will stand before us and they will break these loaves just like the body of our Savior was broken. And they will give you part of it. And you'll take this cup just like his blood was shed. And we will identify ourselves with Christ yet again. That Jesus, I'm yours. I believe you are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. Friends, if you're visiting with us today, this is what we proclaim. Jesus is Messiah. The Son of the living God. We are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ together here. And if you are a part of the kingdom of God, if you have come by faith and repentance to Christ, we invite you to partake of this with us because we proclaim together who Jesus is, the Messiah, Son of the living God. How do we know? God's done a work in our spirits. By His Spirit, He's drawn us. He's revealed who Jesus is. And we have come by faith to Him. And we participate in this by faith. Why? Because he's made us his own. We are his church. We are his church. And we proclaim it together.